I want to introduce the Red Hand listeners to a fantastic business who support the podcast. Hill Fitness is Northern Ireland's leading home gym equipment provider. Whether you're a total beginner buying your first weight set or a strength training veteran creating your dream home gym, Hill Fitness have you covered. From dumbbells to squat racks, gym flooring to exercise bikes, Hill Fitness have everything you need and more. The Red Hand listeners can receive an exclusive discount of 5% off their first order in-store or online. Just use code RED5, all caps, at the checkout. Check them out at hillfitnessuk.co.uk. That's discount code RED5, all capitals, for 5% off your first order at hillfitnessuk.co.uk. Hill Fitness make amazing home gyms happen. Imagine a place free from gravity. Imagine a place free from all external stimulation where the only thing you can hear is your own heartbeat. A place where your physical and mental health can rest and recover, where you can reconnect with your whole self. That place is Hydroways. Come and join us. You can find us at www.hydro-ease.co.uk To celebrate the launch of the Red Hand, the first 100 Red Hand supporters on Patreon will be entered into a free prize draw for an Ulster Rugby season ticket. All you have to do is sign up to the Patreon, and the lucky winner will be drawn from the first 100 entrants. The winner will be announced on the 1st of September at 12pm. Hello and welcome. Before we get stuck into this next episode, I want to remind you that we are in the process of launching a new and improved version of Ulster Rugby Lad. It's called The Red Hand. The idea is to bring you next level Ulster Rugby journalism, offering unrivaled insight, unfiltered opinion, powerful stories and accessible analysis. The website for that will be ready soon. I'm excited about it. I hope you are too. In the meantime, be sure to join the Red Hand Facebook group. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter as well. If you look hard enough, I'm sure you can find us on those platforms. Anyway, I'm joined by former Ulster, Oralac, Gloucester and Connacht prop Paddy McAllister. Paddy has had an amazing career and also a fascinating life off the rugby pitch. Having played at Ireland on their 20s level, Paddy burst onto the scene for Ulster in one of the best Ulster squads of the professional era. He's had an amazing career and now he's retired, he can look back on it all with fresh perspective. Anyway, I'm not going to go on anymore because I want to speak to Paddy. I'll let Paddy introduce himself and Paddy, I'd like to hear more about your playing career in a minute, but could you introduce yourself to fans who maybe don't know who you are and tell us what you're up to now? Yeah, so I am Paddy um, McAllister, for those who, uh, who don't know who I am. Um, what I'm doing currently is I'm head of sponsorship and income revenue for Belfast Harlequins. So essentially, um, I've, you know, I'm, I'm a personable guy. I like engaging with people and going to meet sponsors, creating packages, um, which are obviously benefit the sponsor and benefit the club as well financially and, you know, getting as many in, um as much as I can get out, out of all of them. And and then on the flip side of that is, you know, home games, uh, home, home AIL games, events throughout the year, generating publicity um, and partnerships with, with 
big businesses um, in Belfast. So yeah. it's, it's not even been a year yet, but it's it's been a steep learning curve. Yeah, it sounds like it. So we were talking before we started recording here about you have your hands full and kids and a husband as well, as, as well as your, your job. Uh, how do you balance it all? Um, with a good wife. <laughs> um, you know, we had kids quite early. <clears throat> we had our first child in, when I was playing for Gloucester. And um, I always kind of had this <clears throat> feeling that I wanted at least one of my kids to know and experience rugby. <clears throat> what I did, because right now, you know, in 10, year, 10 years' time, I'll be going, you know, you know, your dad actually played at a decent level and I got, well, whatever, that, you know, and you're trying, trying to find some leaflets out of, like, you know, the, the basement to try and show them. But so I wanted my kids to experience that, you know, around the pitch after games, events. So we had our kids quite, quite, um, quite young and we're expecting our fourth child now as well. So it, it's tough. Like, yeah. the, the, the usual lack of sleep, chaos around the house. Um, but you just get on with it. It's, you know, it's life. You just get on with it and enjoy the precious moments. Yeah, it keeps you out of trouble anyway, being so busy. Yeah. And um, I, I think it's a great time to speak to you because um, you're out of the game now, um, well, a year, is it? Uh, yeah. Pretty much. So um, you're at a stage, I suppose, you've got perspective on your career and you, you've had enough time to sit and, and reflect and, and look back on what was a, an amazing career, like, uh, again, like I want to, I want to go through various points. We talked again before recording uh, about you coming to Northern Ireland, having not played rugby, didn't really know what the academy was, and getting picked for the academy. So we need to start at the beginning to give people context, right? So you were you were not brought up in Northern Ireland. Tell us about your upbringing. Yeah, so I guess my grandparents are uh, are at fault with that. Um, after World War Two, nineteen fifty. My grandfather served in the American Army um, and went to Congo, took a boat all the way to Congo in 1950 um, and became missionaries. So they had spent, you know, their whole adult life there. The story, you know, of my grandparents is there's a book, there's BBC documentaries on them, things like that, um, what they experienced. So my dad obviously was born and raised there. He then met my mom in Bible college um, in France and soon after they got married, went back out to Africa. So that's where we, me and my, uh, my two older brothers and sisters were raised. Spent a year in America after that because my, um, my eldest brother had to go to higher education university. America didn't work out for the family. So we ended up in, in Northern Ireland uh, and Ar in Armagh to be specific. So I played football, loved football, you know, was mad about it. Um, the only request I had from my dad was make sure the school has a football team. Armagh Royal don't have a football team, so I was stuck into rugby. But, you know, when you're younger, if you're physically a bit bigger than your peers, and I had, uh, you could, if it's a luxury or not, but I had two older brothers that beat me up for the, for, for about 10 years. Um, yeah. So I love that physical side of it and was naturally good at it. So after a couple of years, Neil Doak, who was in the, was in the academy at Ulster at that stage, approached myself and my parents about the academy. Again, I had never been to an Ulster rugby game before, didn't know what that was, and he kind of explained it to us. And we agreed. Well, my parents signed the dotted line, which then I reaped the punishments of Neil Doak coming three times a week from Belfast to, to train me during lunch period while my friends were having, you know, a chip sandwich up in the common room. Um, I was I was booking the ring out. And <laughs> so 
So, but it, it you know, obviously I, I benefited from it and in the time he took to nurture me and to, and to create what I was leaving high school um, allowed me to kind of play for Ulster quite young. Yeah, yeah. A lot to get through there, Flip. So growing up, uh, growing up sort of in the jungle from, from what I've heard. And tell me a bit, a bit, a bit more about that experience. So that was sort of a, a very, very quick history of, of where you came from. Tell me a bit more about the actual experience of, of growing up in, in Africa and, and what it was like. I, I loved it for uh, every little boy's dream. You, you, when your backyard is is not fenced and it's just jungle and animals and, you know, I could tell you countless stories of what type of animals I kept and brought into the house that my mom quickly sent straight back out of the house. Um, I had a friend who lived in a different part of, of Africa who would always turn up with, um, it was one of my father's friends who would always turn up with an animal for me. No idea what animal it would. <laughs> one day he turned up with five baby crocodiles. Uh, so I, I managed to keep them in an incubator in my room until they got too big. And, you know, I've still got scars in my hands from from getting too close to them. But I've gone from that, to, you know, cows, antelope. And so I, I absolutely loved it. It, it was um, it was an amazing experience. It's something which I'm very conscious. I want my kids to experience different cultures and and what the real world is really like. So yeah. I definitely benefited from that now as a man. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a unique upbringing. And then to go to Armagh, like how, how did you settle in? And you're this, presumably a big lad, you know, coming in and excelling at rugby. It must have been, must have been odd for you to go to school in a, in a culture that you maybe weren't used to. And then to be, tell me a bit more about sort of your uh, your. your it, it, it sounds so simple the way you described it before, but you must have done a lot to impress sort of scouts. I don't know, whoever, if the Ulster branch had uh, officers out watching you and, and sent Neil Doak down to watch you. Tell me a bit more. I know it's hard to do with being a, a humble man uh, like yourself, but tell me a bit more about how you got noticed or what was the particular X factor you had that made them sit up and take notice? Yeah, so, so I, kinda, I, joined, um, I joined in second year, halfway through the school year. And I remember one one day we had matches against, I can't remember what school it was, and they, they chucked me in the B team for, you know, knew nothing about rugby. But at halftime, they moved me from the B team to the A team. Um, still had no clue. And uh, I mean, that was my first ever game of rugby, and I was lying in the middle of a bottom of a ruck, you know, sprawled out, hands and legs everywhere, which, you, you know, you, you should protect yourself at the bottom of a ruck. And unfortunately, my, my ankle and my leg got caught between two people and completely, you know, rotated and snapped. Oh, my um, gosh. Yeah. Like kind of one, one of those injuries. Yeah. That was my first experience. I was a cast. I had a cast up to my hip for about six months. So the next year was medallion. Oh, no, it was, was third year. So I played for the medallion um, where some people can play for the year above. Yeah. Uh, medallion level played there and then played my own medallion. And it wasn't when I went to fifth year, it was when Doki uh, approached me. You know, again, I was completely blind to people who scouts, things like that. Obviously, they had them. Um, but when they told me that, yeah, my, the coaches always kind of earmarked and said to my dad privately, even in first year, second year, third year, whatever, you know, he's going to play for Ulster and stuff. But my dad was a novice to it too. So yeah. it kind of just came at us and... I enjoyed the ride, and, and unfortunately, my, as a young kid, I was, you know, when I was told if you work hard at this, you could be a professional rugby player. Yeah. My studies then kind of weren't <laughs> weren't the best then. 
Yeah. Uh, but it, it worked. It's worked out. It's um, brought yeah. into obviously the, the underage Ulster and Irish stuff. And, um, you know, the rest is kind of history getting into Ulster. Yeah. So it, it, it was, um, I suppose at the start, it wasn't the case of being particularly ambitious. You're just naturally good at it. And it, it was it was whenever the age group representative uh, team started picking you that you're like, right, this is this is on. This, this could be a career. Um, yeah. I definitely uh, think it was just my brothers. You know, I, yeah. we wrestled and fought all the time. Yeah. Um, so going into I've never played a physical sport before. So when you when you're told you can there's a free license here to run at somebody or hit somebody hard. Yeah, kind of relished it, relished it, and enjoyed it, and you know, bouncing people. I loved it, things like that. So, um, I think naturally, then I was gifted. Obviously, naturally, physically, as a schoolboy, yeah. you can yeah. always spot those kids out from a mile away. Um, so yeah, I think that. And then whenever I started to slowly understand what rugby was, what Ulster was, and what it could be for for me as a as an adult, that's whenever I started to dive into it. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I'm the youngest of uh, three brothers as well. Uh, the next one is seven years older than me. So I know what it's like to be beaten up. Sadly, it didn't result in a professional rugby career for me. <laughs> but I'm glad it works out for you. And you obviously had a bit more to you uh, and natural ability. So um, that's amazing. Like Because um, everyone everyone else I've spoken to, it's sort of been like, I oh, rugby is a passion from when I was five years old and I started mini rugby. But... Um, it's it's really interesting to hear this unique story of someone who had, didn't really care about rugby till they're fourteen and then throw yeah. it into the mix and, and, and excel. So tell me a bit more about then. You went to uh, you got uh, into the Ireland uh, under twenties team and played for the academy. Tell me a bit more about that step up in, in quality. Was it something which intimidated you? Did you thrive? What was the environment like? No, it, it didn't really intimidate me. We we had a, we had a good group of uh, players when I left school who joined the academy. So there was myself, Nevin Spence, Johnny Shields, who we were all close with. Sean Dougal had come in. Um, there was David McGregor. So there was that crop. Um, and we all lived with each other in Belfast. So we, we were all pretty pretty tight friends. We all were lucky that got we got selected for each underage thing as well. I'm not saying we were very clicky, but at that, you know, in those underage things back then, it was just a lot of excitement. There was no, there was no real rivalries. You know, we knew the the Leinster D four guys had a had a um, an arrogance that they were just born with. You know, it's not their fault. I almost say that about the English when I, when I went to England. It's not they just don't know they're arrogant. They just born with it. <laughs> yeah. um, so you can't you can't blame them. You know, the monster guys are almost bipolar. They're so passionate about stuff. You know, they'll flip a switch on anything. Um, and the Connick guys that were there, you know, everyone got on really well. And we just had so much pride and felt so lucky to be able to represent. That's the first time you wear the green jersey. So mm. there's a lot of huge excitement within this team, within your family, within your friends. So it was just a really enjoyable experience. And yeah, as the standard goes up, it, 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 it challenges you a lot more. Um, people get weeded out. People can't survive it. People can't hack it. It happens all the time. Yeah. Um, and the people that, that can um, kind of develop a career out of it. Yeah, and, and you say people get weeded out or they, they can't hack it. What is it about the game? Is it the physical or the mental or, I mean, both? I mean, of the people you saw, what was the main reason? Was it just like the pressure is too much when you're playing in front of big crowds or what is it? 
it wasn't really the pressure in matches. It definitely was a mental thing, but I think it was the day-to-day. So every fan sees the end product, but during the week, there's a lot of effort and discipline and all of this, and you need to give 100% to it um, to be able... You'd be very lucky to make it as a as a professional rugby player based on you know kind of laziness and pure talent. Yeah. Um, so it, it it takes your whole life commitment. It's a very selfish sport. Mm. It's a very you know when you meet a partner, they have to understand it's an extremely selfish sport. And if you don't have that or aren't able to commit to it, it's a convertible system. Next year, there's more guys in the academy. Who wants your position, you know, so you can get chucked off that conveyor belt. It's very hard sometimes to get back onto it. So you need it. You need to have that passion. You need to have that ambition. And obviously you need to have the talent. So people get weeded out as for multiple reasons, but to my, from my experience, a lot of it is mental. Yeah. And that's really interesting. So in, in terms of that team, you came through, there's big names, correct me if I'm wrong. So Peter O'Mahony, Connor Murray, um, Madigan, uh, Reese Roddick, uh, people like that. Was it obvious for those guys that, I mean, did you look around you and go, like, those are the guys who are going to make the very top level? Or are there some surprises, do you know, in, in that group? Yeah, we, we had a pretty tough, yeah, our, our under 20s team was pretty good. Yeah. Um, you know, we had Dominic Ryan, we had Jack McGrath in there as well, Dave Carney, um, Matt Healy came in as a scrum half went to the Leinster Academy, got chucked out of the Leinster Academy, Lansdowne picked him up as a winger. Now he's the top try scorer in Connacht's history. Yeah. He's just, yeah. just retired. So <clears throat> people like that, we, we knew we were talented, but you never know what's around the corner. This is uh, probably then you don't understand it. But now looking back in my senior year, my latter years of rugby, anything can happen. Uh, your whole job and your whole family's life is based about one man's opinion of you yeah. and he couldn't like you or rate you. But if he goes and the next guy comes in, he might love you. Yeah. So it, it, it's such a strange dynamic and that's why it's so mentally, mentally tough. Um, but no, it, it's looking back on it and seeing pictures and things like that. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a proud thing that I've, you know, I played, I think it was like 16, 17 times for Ireland twenties with that crop of players and, yeah. you know Japan World Cup things like that and we can always look back on it absolutely so it was you and Jack McGrath battling out was it for the one jersey or were you, were you playing the other side at that time or he we kind of swapped around loose head tight head yeah things like that um and then we had Adam Macklin in there yeah, who, yeah. um who's in the mix so yeah we kind of all rotated around a bit yeah, that's interesting. Now, it's some crop of players came, came through that team. Like, that's a who's who of, like, uh, Ireland stalwarts, you know. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so I want to talk a wee bit about Ulster then as well. So you came through that team. Um, the academy, what was it, like 2010 or... Well, 2010, you would have broken into the senior side. Is that right? So that... Gosh, you know what dates? I, I've got no idea. I know. So in, in terms of... but. One thing I do know is that you would have been part of that team, which is one of the most, it was probably the most talented Ulster squad, you know, um, that we've had uh, since, I suppose, if, if you consider the squad in 99 as the absolute peak in Ulster history, this is a squad which contained 
the um, superstar South African guys who came over, um, John Afua, uh, uh, you would have overlapped with as, as well then. So in terms of that squad and making that step up to the senior team, there's some big characters in there. And again, another level up. So it just sounds like this, this continue, continual sort of conveyor belt of progressive difficulties, you know, um, and you got into this team. Tell me a, a bit about that team. Was there someone in the squad maybe who... Uh, took you under their wing or was it just a, a ruthless competitive environment what's what's sort of the atmosphere like when you set the step into a squad like that you know when I first so you had a year in the academy and then when you get invited to the train so we trained in New Forge yeah. no we trained in uh, Jordanstown sorry back at the academy those days and the senior team were at New Forge so we were completely separate there was no interactions whatsoever like it is nowadays mm-hmm. And when you get that call of they want you to train with them, it's a massive step and it's a, you know, it's a massive um, achievement of step up in your career. So I was extremely lucky and it's weird how it coincided that myself and Nevin, every time there was a contract, a call up, anything was coincided with each other. Um, I'm a man of faith. I'm not, I'm not a religious guy, but I've got faith and Nevin had came from the same background having that kind of body to, to, you know, to have those quiet conversations with what yet, if it was in a bus, if it was in a changing room about, man, he said that to me or the coach, you know, what do you think? But again, we were extremely lucky where in this environment, you talk about the superstars, you had your Ruan Pinar, Johan Muller, Andrew Trimble and Paul Marshall um, and Pedri Wannenberg, who's, you know, sadly passed away who we started a, a Bible, a Bible thing every week. So to have that support system as well was unheard of. Yeah. Um, and those small things help you, you know, because as I said to you earlier about people get weeded out with mental pressure, when you jump up to the senior squad, that's when it just boom, that's when it hits you. Mm-hmm. You're getting judged every training session. You can't hide. You're getting judged by the senior players. You have to earn their respect. The coaches obviously think you've got some talent but you got to show it and prove it to them. So it was massively exciting. You know, I remember putting my, my bags down in the changing room first, me and Nevin, in, uh, in our first training session. And when we came back, our bands were, bags were in the bin, you know, stuff like that. Very territorial of where, where they changed. So we didn't make any yeah. fuss about that whatsoever. Quickly got changed beside the bin and left. Um, but no, it was, it was so... It's such a small place, Northern Ireland, and Ulster so well-supported that... You get you have so much buzz from your family and friends that you're there, and it's such an encouragement, and you don't want to let them down. So your hard work pays off ultimately. Yeah, had that been your dream? I suppose as a, I mean, you've travelled a lot and stuff like that. But whenever it was Ulster, did obviously uh, events transpired and 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 you left Ulster. But was the dream always to play for Ulster and see see your career in Northern Ireland? Hundred oh, percent. Um, I loved it. I loved it. Um. I mean, I remember looking around in team huddles in the middle of matches or in training. It was all Ulstermen. We had four foreigners and one project player. Yeah. The rest were all Ulstermen. Yeah. They had families. They had ex-school teachers, cousins, everything around. You know, the, the amount of pride that we had in that team representing our county was unbelievable. Um, now, when you say the events transpired, I had a bad knee injury. I was about to, you know, I'd done well for a couple of years, you know, before I was 22, I'd, I'd played just under 50 caps. 
Um, I'd gotten into a Six Nations training camp, but I couldn't go because there was a, a, a tweak my knee against Monster the 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 Friday night before. Um, so things transpired so that that summer I completely, you know, ruined my knee. Um, yeah. on. And I was about to sign a new contract there. Didn't happen. Was off the table then, yeah. um, which is a business. But it took a long, you know, two months after that, Nevin passes away. Yeah. Um, and then we'll touch about, you know, mental health later yeah. on, I'm sure. But yeah, a lot of things went, were a bit of a domino effect in that in a, in a calendar year. Yeah. And I mentioned Northern Ireland's a small place. It, it was almost driving me insane. Um, I wasn't in a good place whatsoever. And fast forward two years, Jeremy Davison had um, had said, you know what, come out here, come and see it. We'd love to have you. I remember sitting down with Humph and said, listen, Humph, I am an Ulster man. I love this place. I just mentally have to go away, fall in love with the sport again, fall, you know, and I want to come back. I, I just need this. I need to do this mentally. And that, that was my reasons of, of leaving. Um, you know, they were disappointed, obviously. And I can understand that because, you know, they rehabbed me a lot. They were so, still young. There's still potential there. So I can understand their frustrations, but on a personal thing, and it was a big step. Um, I had a lot of people saying it's, it's going to be the ruin of me, but I just had to do it mentally. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me a bit more. Like, uh, I'd like to delve into that period of time a wee bit more because in terms of, things that can happen to an athlete um it's pretty much um like your world sort of falls apart do you know uh, number one so you have your injury sounds like a fairly catastrophic knee injury right so um i want to hear a bit more about that uh, every every ulster fan will know uh the tragic event uh, events that unfolded with with nevin spence it, it was um it, it was just awful and uh i want to talk about dealing with grief um so you've you have personal grief uh, in two, two areas there. Not, not only is your career looking uh, like it, it could be out the window, would that be fair to say, at, at one yeah, stage? Yeah. Yeah. And then and then your sort of best friend as well passes away in tragic circumstances. Tell me about, you touched on it there, but I want to hear about, I think this is, this is important as well for people listening and dealing with grief to maybe know about how to deal with it or maybe how not to deal with it as well um, to, to get through um, times like that? Yeah, I mean, back then, there wasn't, it was a bit of taboo subject or if it wasn't taboo, it, the resources just weren't available. Um, you know, I was a young kid at 22. I had this knee injury where, you know, my, my career was going like this. Suddenly, I, I've seen it happen before with other people doctor was saying you know this is it's a really big chance you know you're lucky that you could to walk properly um after it so having to deal with that and then obviously with nevin um passing away and, and the tragedy of, of his dad and brother it um it rocked me big time um for, i remember i was going out with my my wife she was my girlfriend at that stage and um within ulster there was people saying you know if you want to chat let me know but as a young kid how do I approach that? How do I knock on a door and say, I'm struggling? Um, so for six months, I, I would say I was in a, in a bad de depression. And, you know, I remember that I remember clearly how to really, how I got out of it was I was out maybe one night 
or one week about six times that night that week still training but seeing random people um on my facebook oh they're out in, in town in belfast and saying i'm just going to go and meet up with them because i don't want to be at home by myself all of this and my girlfriend at the time said that's it you, you gotta you gotta stop this or i'm out of here and the selfish person i was like what happened you know my knee my friend what how can you talk to me like this and she said she laid it out to me straight you know she was there for me she supported me but she can't live like this anymore so it was the it was a kick up the ass i needed and um after that i started to get out of it i started to talk to somebody and you know concentrate a lot of my rehab and things like that and then you know fast forward a year we get married and three days later go to france and, and spend a year there um but i definitely think now is a lot different to what it was back then in terms of mental health big time yeah because uh, I, I was in a deep hole then yeah and i suppose looking back what could have been done better like people make these uh maybe pay lip service to the fact that oh, I, like you can speak to me anytime but as you say like in practice what does that mean like uh for particularly for men and I imagine for athletes in that environment like macho environment it's actually very difficult to open up that conversation and start, you know, it's saying yeah. what you're struggling with. Uh, looking back, and I suppose with the perspective that you have now, how could that be dealt with better? Um, and what uh, what measures can be put in place now with uh, in terms of people who are injured? And then on top of that, like people go through grief and trauma, uh, including rugby players. What, what maybe could be done better to support players dealing with mental turmoil? Just to say on that, what I went through when I was a young kid with Nevinum injury, I blame nobody for that mm -hmm. because no one knew better. Yeah. So no one went out of their way to not do something. Um, it was just, there wasn't the resources there and information to, to be able to handle stuff like that like there is now. So there's no fault of anybody mm -hmm. whatsoever within Ulster um, back then. Now, Fast forward 14 years and um, the way it's set up now, you know, I went through and, and I've been honest about it before. Um, my last year, you know, we have a pandemic at Connet or the world was in a, pan, in a pandemic. I was at Connet and my wife, who was 30, 34 weeks pregnant, suddenly, you know, in the space of 10 minutes, she has a stroke. And and, and I spotted the, the symptoms early and um, for two days, you know, she, she got taken to Beaumont in Dublin because it was that serious and I had to rush there and, you know, they gave me two options. One was a 60% chance of death. One was 40% chance of death. And, you know, she's unbelievable now, no physical impairments, nothing. And the wee baby, our wee baby girl, Eliana survived and, you know, is the shining light of our house right now with, with all of what she's doing. But I... I completely, and you know, fathers and husbands will, will understand this. I completely focused all my energy into making sure my family was all right and neglected myself completely. And I knew it was getting bad, but I still had, I can't take time out for me until I feel my family are safe. And it wasn't until I was lying in bed and I had actual physical symptoms then, not just mental, of cold shivers, um, sweating in bed, serious anxiety. And the next day I was like, right, I'm, I'm turning into a man that cannot provide the best for what my family needs now. So I need now to make a phone call. Maybe that's age and experience. 
um, or the situational. Um, but I, I, I reached out to the RPI here, um, Rugby Players Association, who were unbelievable. And yeah, I was diagnosed with, with depression. I went on medication and counseling um, and, and fixed a lot, of, a lot of issues that I had that I had mentally. Now the RPI play a massive role um, with players on any aspect of life. Uh, even when they retire, I still deal with the RPI probably once every two weeks, still have conversations, advice. Can you check this CV? Can you, what's, your, what's your opinions of that? I think they're them in New Zealand are the role models. Uh, what, what I was told actually two weeks ago of all world union rugby unions um, around the world of Ireland is one of the top models that people try and go on to. So they're a massive support now. They're physically there all the time in clubs. You have one, one representation has an office at every club in Ireland, which is so good to have um, the, those confidential conversations with. So it is, you know, this is just one of many things which is so different from what rugby was back when I started to what it is now when I left. Um, yeah. I don't know if that answered your question or not. It does. Uh, and um, what I'm hearing is someone who um, has the wisdom to, uh, to accept that maybe there's something wrong. And I think uh, obviously you've fought a number of tough battles, both in terms of injury, grief, and then, as you say, more recently with your wife and that very difficult period of where, she, where she wasn't well and supporting your family. And I, I think it's admirable. And one of the big big reasons it's great to hear that from me is I don't think men men in particular speak out about that stuff enough. Now, it's probably true across the population. I think we're very reserved in Ireland, you know, in the UK. And people don't want to be seen as uh, weak or maybe they don't want to bother people about it. But um, to, to admit that there's maybe something that doesn't feel right and, and speak to someone is, is, is great. And to have the wisdom to do that is, is admirable. So I want to ask you a wee bit, you touched on it earlier about, about your motivations and you talk about faith there as well and, and not being maybe necessarily religious, but having any faith. Tell me a bit more about your priorities and your values. Like those must have changed over the years as you as you become a parent, a husband, and your relationship with faith and stuff has changed. So, you tell me a wee bit more about that if you're if you're happy doing that. Yeah, no, I'm, I I'm extremely lucky in terms of my family from what they've done, and you know, if we're talking from a faith perspective, um, it's very easy for me to to have the confidence and the knowledge and of experience and things like that, which gives me strength in my faith. Um, having the right people around you, marrying a great woman who, who, who has the same, same faith as me. Uh, you're 100% right in terms of when you start earlier in your career, it's all about play for Ireland. Play for Ireland. Your whole career is judged if you play for Ireland or not. Um, things change you know you've no idea what's around the corner and for me i actually had to have conversations with certain people um when i was about to when i made the choice to retire that you know when i first came to Connacht, is there a chance to ever play for ireland coaches were talking to me and i was almost getting the getting indication that my kind of i couldn't tick the box of my rugby career if i didn't and i, I kind of had to say to these guys you know i've come back from personal things and injuries here, which I was told not many people would have. And I've still had four, 14 years of it. I've played in unbelievable clubs 
I'm extremely proud of what I've done. I don't need that Ireland cap to say that my journey's complete. Um, so your whole career, like it's in life, but my whole, because rugby's so short and compact and it's 24-7 all the time, every day, things are a bit, you know, a bit faster than the real world. But you got to evolve. You've got to change whether it's new coaches, whether it's injuries, body's not going to be the same. How do you, how do you, how do you mold yourself differently? Laws of the game. I mean, I see some of these young kids coming in the academy now going, how big are these guys? Um, and it's scary. And I genuinely believe length of career, duration of careers are going to be way shorter um, because of injuries. Uh, it's, it's just the body was not going to, not going to be able to cope with it. I remember Kyle Sinclair, he just did a, not Kyle Sinclair, Ben Obano, the prop for Bath, he just did a documentary on Harlequins. I don't know if you've seen it on Amazon Prime. Uh-huh. He did a three three part documentary of their preseason last year, and one of the one of the quotes was something like, "I don't know if it's exact right, but a sixty mile per hour car crash has a g force of like 70, 70 g's, yeah. but the highest recording rugby hit is over two hundred five. Like." <laughs> It's it's a brutal sport. <laughs> like I yeah. wake up, you know, I woke up two months ago with a swollen ankle, and I'm like, yeah. I did not. I, all I did all I did was go to bed. <laughs> how do how do I get into the duvet? It might have been the winter duvet still on. I don't know, but how, how does that happen? Yeah. So it's just it's it's crazy how this, how the sport is, and it's evolving. The player has to evolve, you know, yeah. faster probably to 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 maintain themselves in it. Yeah. Oh, oh, absolutely! No, it's it's insane that, and um, now that you're you're finished playing, you look back in that career. Now you had a long career by by most standards, you know, and it could have been longer, but for uh, an accumulation of injuries and things like that. But um, you had a, a had a pretty good stint. Looking back and all all that you've achieved and the, the the opportunities you've had to travel, live in different places, and and earn a living doing something you love. Is there any part of you regrets that because of the um, the physical toll that, that took in your body, or is it all worth it? No, uh, what I've been in, I was three. I was involved in three finals with Ulster, two with Gloucester, lost every one of them. Um, so do I look back and regret not winning? Yeah, you know, it's it's always nice to be involved in those finals, but to lose all of them is kind of disappointing. Especially, I think the Ulster Henning Cup final is yeah. it's still the the biggest. Biggest points difference or something in a final. We have the record for that, which isn't a great record to have. Um, but I'd say on a, on a rugby perspective on the pitch, I got no regrets whatsoever. Um, mentally, did I let things affect me too much? Did I let certain individuals control me too much, influence my, my home lifestyle? Um, because I brought it back with me the mind games, things like that. Yeah. For a few good few years of my career, that did affect me a lot. And until I I remember clearly the conversation I had with myself that I'm not, you know, it's done, you know, that sort of thing's done. Like it's not going to affect me whatsoever. If it's a no from something or yes from something, right. That's it. You know, at least I know I never wanted to retire going, I wish I would have had that conversation with him or I wish I would have picked up the phone. So I'm proud I haven't done that, but for a certain amount of years, yeah, the mental aspect of rugby is, you know, it, it, it's brutal. 
I mean, you're getting judged. I don't know in the real world, you might get quarterly judged, you know, from your, from your bosses or your, how well you're doing stuff like that. Whereas rugby, it's twice a week. You're getting yeah. told you're bad. You're good. Yeah. You know, if you played a game, you get told you, you were good or you were bad. You know, if you're not getting picked, yeah, you're bad. You know, that's a lot of mental stress to take, yeah. especially when kids get more, get, get involved in the, in the picture and contract years happen. There's a lot of pressure there. And yeah. As I said earlier, your whole life is is based on one guy's opinion of you. Yeah. Um, yeah. And another guy would ha- could have a completely different opinion of you, but yeah. you just got to roll with it. Uh, so it, it's a it's an extremely um, mentally hard hard profession. Yeah. It's, um, but yeah, that's 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 the downsides of it. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's taken both the physical and the mental toll. Would you say that will t- probably take a while to recover? I mean, for for both of those things to get out of that mindset. That I suppose I, I think I can't remember who it was who interviewed before, but basically they described it as exactly as you've described it as like you're, you're nervous in the run up to a game for two reasons. You want to get picked, so you're nervous about that, and if you do get picked you're nervous that you're picked. <laughs> and then once the game's finished, you're immediately nervous about the next game. And it's an endless cycle. And although we're, go- we're I suppose, slightly out of order now, but I want to ask you now, has that, now that you've transitioned out of the game, has that mental tool, is that something you're trying to decompress from? Are you, are you just trying to find, I suppose, as someone who's been involved in the game from when you were a kid, do you know, yeah. uh, that must be it must be like coming back back to earth do you know and yeah and, uh it takes a bit of adjusting to is that right yeah i mean especially my last two years at Connacht, you know as a senior senior member of the squad and a senior player with experience i almost started to detest the the conversations um because it's such a it's such a tough profession to um to survive in and i know coaches it's probably a hard, it's harder than than players, and I, I don't want to say things out of line here, but you know, coaches are very much you got to protect yourself um, to keep your job. And I almost started to detest this honesty of the conversations you would have with certain members of the coaching staff when you know it's 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 not true what's going on here. You still got to have that respect. So I, I was detesting. The judgment, you know, the judgment on you. You could do 20 things right in the game, but you missed this tackle. That's why you're not getting picked. If you fought back, that could be put against you. Like, oh, you're just, you know, just go work hard. You're not taking it well. So I started to hate that judgment fact of it. Then I retire and I'm starting this new job. One, I'm going, what do I wear? What do I wear to work? I have no idea. What socks? What shirt? I don't know. I've got, you know, I had no idea. I had to call my boss going, what do I wear today? Because you're told for your four sessions a day, this sock, these shorts, this travel, this, this, and this. So I had no idea about that. Then starting to write emails to people. And I was starting to crave. I needed judgment. I needed someone to tell. I was going to my wife, read this and tell me how bad it is, please. I need you to like, you know, like I'm someone whipping you in the back. And I needed that that pain to, to keep going and that or that, that judgment because that's all I've experience in rugby is yeah judgment right you have to achieve judgment you have to get better judgment you have so i was going like to my wife deborah read it tell me how bad it is and she's like no that's cool no 
where's it bad? Tell me what do I need to improve on it? And yeah. I, you know, it's hard to get that mindset out of you after yeah. testing it to craving it. And I needed, I needed someone to let me know actually where I stand because yeah. rugby is in, in a way honest. If, if you don't know where you stand, you can walk 10 meters in the coach's office and say, where do I stand? They'll yeah. give you an answer, whether you like the answer or not in the real yeah. world. It doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. That's it. That's so interesting. And I want to pick up a couple of points there, but um, no, this is a bit of an amateur psychiatry, but I suppose you seem like you're fairly hard on yourself. And I suppose like the fact you have coaches and telling you stuff yeah. <laughs> in addition to maybe negative self-talk that you already have, is that what grits? Is that part of it? Or is that, am I off the mark with that? No, I think you've, uh, my character um, as me individually, Patty, um yeah i'm a big guy but I'm, I'm a caring person i'm a very protective person whether that's someone down the street or whatever i don't know them i have this <coughs> i have this just i don't know this protective gene i care about people i invest my time on the rugby pitch outside of the training ground i invest in the people and that's just me so maybe that makes me a bit softer when it comes to the judgment side of things. And it takes me a while to get used to it, but I've had to learn, you know, and I, I, you're, I was only a kid going through all this stuff. So no one's when they start their professional career has the mental side, yeah. you know, sorted. You've yeah. got to, you, you've got to experience um, rejection. You've got to experience all of those things to be able to mold yourself now, you know, I'm, I'm 32 year old now. How, can I deal with that stuff way better? Can I have these conversations way, you know, way better? hundred yeah. um, percent. But yeah, you, you do, you were, you are right in that sense. Like self doubt, things like that, because I want to make people happy. And, and when you're in this profession, you are supporting your wife and your kids. So yeah. there's a lot of pressure there. Yeah. And the last thing you need is someone maybe accusing you of, of not trying hard enough or doing something yeah. wrong when yeah. you're, you're, you're daily uh, striving to do well in training and, and matches and stuff like that. And um, you, you touched, I find it fascinating. And one of the reasons I enjoy the podcast so much is hearing what, um, what motivates different players and the way they respond to coaches and stuff like that. So um, I always think we were talking there about the way maybe you respond to, to, that feedback or criticism or perceived criticism as, I mean, that can be frustrating or certainly by the end of your career, you find it frustrating. And that's because you take that feedback so seriously. And I just remember hearing about like, I mean, you take it on board because you care and it's your, it's your something that you're ambitious, you're, you want to do well. And that's why you take it on board. The other side of it is players. I've heard David Beckham when Alex Ferguson would criticize him, he wouldn't take it because he knew he was in his head, even if he'd had a bad game in his head, he'd had a good game. And yeah. so that's the other end of the spectrum. It's like, it's almost, it's an arrogance, a certain level of arrogance or confidence and denial about playing badly. And a good coach knows how to, um, how to adapt, I suppose, between the two yeah. types of players on that note, who are the good coaches or who are the best coaches that you've worked with? And, I'm not going to ask you to name bad coaches, but what are the traits of a bad coach uh, that you've maybe experienced or seen in your career? You know, um, I think I was really lucky to have Brian McLaughlin for, for Ulster when I first joined. Um, I just loved his enthusiasm. He, you know, he put his arm around me and have conversations. He'd 
you know, clip my ears if I needed it sometimes too as a young kid. Um, but as a first kind of head coach, I felt, I feel like I, I, I lucked out there um, having him there. You know, to me, in essence, it was a bad coach. Um, so here's the story, and I won't, I won't name the coach. So I was playing against La Rochelle away. This would have been maybe five years ago when they had the biggest pack in Europe. They were huge. European competition, complete underdogs. We're, we're winning the match. And I remember having the review after the game, after, you know, a couple of days after the game with one of the coaches. And he said uh, he, wants, he wanted to show me a clip of me defending them all of theirs in their half. Now, defending them all, you know, for the forwards out there, it's one of the toughest and most exhausting things to do, especially against La Rochelle. But 60 minutes into the game, and then he, he says, follow yourself. They make, a, they make a bust way down the other side of the wing. And he's like, look at all you in the forwards running back, you know, you should be slower or quicker. And then he shows me a clip of Mako Vunapolo 15 seconds into a game getting into the defensive line. And in my mind, I'm going, is this guy for real? It's 15 seconds into the game, 60 minutes into the game, Lara shell away. And he wants me to do exactly that. And that's, you know, and at that stage of my career, I wasn't confident enough to go, Mate, what are you talking about? Um, so I went to change them after going like, listen, guys, where do you hear this? And they were like, what the heck? So coaches to me, I don't think there's a bad coach, but I think when there's a coach who has never played at the top level or who played at the top level 40 years ago yeah. because rugby's changed so much, yeah. they don't understand, Yeah, in my opinion. And I'm not saying all of them. The one, yeah. Some of them yeah. that I've experienced, it's, it's, it's very hard. Um, unless you're you're playing right now in professional rugby, to condemn and to give serious, honest, negative feedback to somebody, there has to be this element of like not, credit, credit not the head, yeah, well, not the headmaster yeah. slamming a kid type yeah. of type of conversation. There has to be a bit of respect both ways, and sometimes I've experienced there's been no respect given to me. Yeah. In, in conversations when I'm going, um, you know, I respect you. I'll, I'll always be cordial. And, and, I, and I understand business and pleasure is very different. But those are the coaches I struggle with, to be honest with you. Um, yeah. You tell me, yeah, without getting too much into it, um, I've enjoyed all, all my coaches, some of them with the strangest personalities, some of them, you know, <laughs> very funny people some of them very you know aggressive people um but there's always been that respect always you know what i mean like uh, yeah. i've never been dishonest or condemned a coach behind their back or something like that but yeah to me reality of um of their experiences sometimes to what the current game is there's no compassion there that's probably a good word interesting that's really interesting good compassion is uh is really interesting one in that context between coach and player. And it was actually Willie Anderson that I was speaking to recently um, was talking about showing compassion and, and um, knowing how to adapt his his style of coaching. And uh, you mentioned Brian McLaughlin. It's, it's funny, like, Brian, no one I've spoken to has ever said a bad word. In fact, quite the opposite. They, they all think Brian McLaughlin did a, a great job at Ulster, I think. Most people are going to the same go, and um, yeah, it was a, uh, it was a bit of drama. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and and so that's really interesting about about what makes it what makes a good coach the ability to to relate in, in an appropriate way with players, not not to not to speak to them as a school teacher, which ironically Brian McLaughlin was. But <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, and Drew Schmidt as well. But, but you know, he he respected the senior players. I've never been involved in a squad before where he fully respected the opinion of the senior players. I remember sitting one day in a, in a team meeting and Brian, the way the fixtures worked out, Brian said that next Sunday we're going to train. Now, Johan Muller stands up and goes, okay, coach is out. Players will have a, have a chat straight yeah. away. Coach yeah. is left. Johan said, put your hands up if you want to train on Sunday. No one put their hands up. He said, right, we're not training on Sunday. He yeah. went to speak to Brian. We didn't train Sunday. Yeah. Like, that, <laughs> it that seems so simple. <laughs> Yeah, but the respect we were lucky in that in that squad where we had the likes of Johan, Stevie, Paddy Wallace, Rory Best, you know, Tommy Bow, Trimble, who who the coaches respected. Yeah, leaders, yeah. yeah. And listened to us and it was give and take. It wasn't, you know. Yeah, I know. Way. That's I, I love that and, and the respect that goes both ways in that scenario. And you're saying you, you've learned lots from different coaches. Would you ever coach yourself? Is that an ambition or something that you think you'd enjoy? You know, I know I would, um, I know I'd go well at it. You know, I, I definitely know I've, I did a little bit bits in, in England, in Galway, here at Harlequins. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing some of the coaching as well, um, more individual stuff and technic, technical things, but and, and after training stuff, I know I could do well in it. But when we go back to when I first started playing rugby, my passion was animals. I wanted to go to a conservation university in South Africa, sit in a Land Rover in the middle of Africa with a crate of beer. And my job would be count the zebra today, the next day, count the giraffe. That would have been my dream job. So I don't think because I didn't grow up with that passion from four years old, Ulster, Ulster, Ulster. When I've left rugby, you need to have that passion. Yeah. And I, I don't have it. Um, yeah. I love it and I'm grateful. But as I said earlier as well in the podcast that I, you know, it's extremely tough profession as a player. I think it's way tougher as a coach yeah. in terms of loyalties, things like that. You know, some, some head coach comes in, gets rid of half of the guys that are currently there just because he wants his own guys. So where are we going? Oh, there's, a, there's an opportunity in, you know, France. Okay. Let's move on. I, I don't want that lifestyle. Yeah. Um, so no, I, I I don't I wouldn't want to get into coaching as my main profession at all. It's it's funny you say that because uh, you know in some ways you think of of that's a natural progression, but uh, having spent a lot of time in your career traveling about, I'm sure, and now you're back up here and seem to be enjoying life. The last thing you want to do is say take up a job in France or somewhere like that. And and speaking of that, so uh, you you touched on it earlier. So I want to backtrack in the timeline a wee bit. Yeah. So you're, you're saying about the Ulster rugby bubble, like you've been through a traumatic experience, processed grief, Nevin passing away, your traumatic sort of time, recovering from injury as well, just uh, as uh, icing on that awful awful traumatic uh, time in your life. What what sparked that move? What was your experience in France like? Jeremy Davidson was probably on the phone take, uh, whatever, convincing you to come over. Tell me a wee bit more about that experience and and uh, I suppose tied into that, you're, you received another call from an ex-Ulster man, which brought you to Gloucester. Tell me a, bit, a wee bit about that. Yeah, so, you know, We've spoken about the injuries and all that. I, I had Jeremy as a forwards coach at Ulster before he went to 
went to Aurillac and the bubble here was just so small and mentally I wasn't doing well. I'd spoken to my wife about the opportunity. Brent Cunningham was actually working as my agent at that stage as well um, when he had fin just finished up with rugby. And Jeremy said, just come on over with Deborah and, and have a look for a couple of days and see what you think. So we went there, enjoyed it. And we kind of said, well, why not? I, I always backed myself. I know it was second division in France, but I was 25 just turned 25. I, I backed myself to get out into a top league again. Yeah. Um, but I just had to fall in love with the sport again. And what we went to France to try and get, we got that and way more. It was probably the most enjoyable season of my life, like playing rugby. It's You can't have a sentence that describes the French leagues um, and the rugby there. It's extremely difficult. The size of those people are massive. You've got Fijians stepping you, you know, all over the place. The, you know, the medical setup is pretty, you know, amateurish. Your pay, getting monthly pays is, is a bit, you know, like, like the Wild West. Um, but what we got socially and what we got um, out of meeting people there that we're still extremely close to, um, we, we absolutely loved it. And it wasn't until, yeah, four months in, you know, David Humphreys gave me a call. I met him at a McDonald's in Gloucester in the middle of December to, to have a chat about it. And um, yeah, we just decided, you know what, we, we knew something would, would come. This has obviously come a bit earlier, but I think the frustration of the inconsistency of pay kind of just tipped us like, right, we will, let, let's go. Um, yeah, me and my brother lived in Gloucester, right. um, so that that was a big help, and yeah, we decided to to go there. But France was just amazing. Yeah, it's going to say, I suppose the prospect of of a Mickey days in December at Gloucester <laughs> just doesn't seem as attractive or tantalising as as staying in France. But I suppose you want to return to playing at the top level, get reliably paid, which um, is always a bonus if you're playing 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 rugby as a as a career. So. Um, right, so you're at Gloucester then. Tell, tell me, um, what was the experience at Gloucester like? Uh, and obviously then, I suppose if we work our way through the timeline, um, Gloucester and the Connacht, can you tell me about both of those experiences in, in a nutshell? So Gloucester, Gloucester was unbelievable. Um, obviously a massive team with extreme her you know, heritage and passionate fans I've, I've known all about them you know going into that team with the likes of Richard Hibbard and James Hook who were you know legends of the sport Greg Laidlaw was great John was there because I spent so much time with him at Ulster and we're very good friends so John Afoa was there <coughs> and um, my brother was there and the premiership you know was always perceived as a as the toughest competition in in uh, in Europe and I just wanted to challenge myself. So we went there. We said we had, we had good four years there. Um, the Prem is brutal. Yeah. Um, I know these Twitter debates of the URC compared to the Prem. I, I completely understand some of the URC teams and how good they are. But the Prem, week by week, the intensity of those games, you know, it's almost toss of the coin. Top, bottom can beat top any day of the week. Yeah. Um, it's a tough old league and we met some great people there. We had two kids there. Um, and I kind of always wanted to get back to Ireland 
to, you know, to kind of be closer to family. Um, my second last year before the contract, uh, Connor tried to buy me out and get me there pretty, pretty quick. And you know how the small world of rugby, I was on the phone to the man at Connett trying to have a conversation with me, which you have to be kind of quiet and hush hush about it because I'm still in contract for another year. After getting off the phone with him, 10 minutes later, David Humphrey sends me a text message going, I've heard you've been offered to Connett. Absolutely no chance. Blah, blah, blah. I'm like, how the heck does he know? <laughs> like, I was going to my wife like, what the heck? Um, <laughs> but that's just how small the rugby fraternity is. And yeah, so that wasn't allowed to happen. Um, but as soon as that season was over, I think pretty much within the first three weeks of preseason, I'd signed with Connett just, you know, to, to, to get back home and yeah. um, to, to get closer to family. So, yeah. Is that what it was? It was the, the lure of, of spending time with family in Connett. Is that the main reason? Albeit, I assume they're based, are they they're based in, in Armagh, are they, or, or which are they? So my wife's family's from Portadown. Oh, really? Um, my parents at that stage when I was in Gloucester still lived in Congo. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> right, okay. My, uh, my two older brothers and my sister lived in England, but in different parts. Um, but to have my, my, my wife close to her family was important for me because I had essentially, as I said about selfish, you know, rugby's a selfish sport. Yeah. I'd taken away her from her family for, yeah. in my opinion, long enough. So... Go, you know, and Galway, I've, I've, it's a beautiful place. Um, yeah. I had no qualms about living there whatsoever. So went over to visit a few times, met them um, as well in England when they had some games in Wales. So we, we had signed and, uh, yeah, really looked forward to it. And, you know, the first year probably couldn't have went any better. Um, and then the pandemic hits you. Yeah. And, and in terms of... In terms of um, sort of your time so the pandemic ate in unfortunately to that but what would have been the the period of time presumably when you're winding not winding down no one wants to wind down but you're thinking uh, you're getting to the stage you're thinking of finishing and transitioning out of the game tell me what what was the reason that made you decide now is the time to transition out of the game to retire and, and do something else you know i i i had no intention of retiring whatsoever. Mom, now myself or my wife wanted to keep going. Yeah. We had contract offers there um, to sign, but I guess as a man and as a, you know, as, as the head of the house, what, what happened with my wife, I, I, I took a step back and looked at what I'd achieved in my career and how long I played. I, you know, my body was, was hanging on too. I could have kept playing as well. But I think it was just time to come home, get some help with the kids, get some, get some stability, um, make sure my wife's recovery is as best as it can be. And, and for us to start a new challenge, um, I didn't want to go into a rugby, a new rugby chapter with a lot of stuff on the outside of rugby that had to be done. Because I said earlier, it, it, it takes a lot of commitment to be successful. Um, yeah. The worst thing in rugby clubs is when you're not playing and you're just holding the tackle shield. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I, I just made the decision that it, it's time for family reasons that I'm going to stop. And I've got no regrets with it because I'm, I'm lucky I had a good career and, and it was on my terms. It's just, I guess what will eat me up for, for a while is, you know, my wife never got to see any of my last games in my last season. 
Um, there was no crowd. There was nothing. It was just kind of, all right, that's it. Okay, thanks, guys. You know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that was weird. Yeah. Oh, sure it was. And um, I sort of said in social media to people, they ask questions and um, got a number of questions in. You've sort of covered this one. Sam from Connet. Uh, he asked, when Paddy finished up professionally, did he feel like he'd left anything out there with injuries or was he content with it? You had you had a number of injuries and things like that. It sounds like you, you did feel, so I'll not answer it for you, but do you feel like you, you definitely had more in you then when you, you finished? Oh, listen, I... Like the, the most dangerous question to have in your head is what if, you know, yeah. what if I didn't have that? What could it have been? Now, what was my trajectory at 22 on the right path for international senior honours? Yeah, I think I, I had the confidence that if I didn't ruin my knee that bad for Ulster, you know, I would have, if I, I would have hopefully played for Ireland. Yeah, but that's a what if you know I've had eight operations in my in my career, and that doesn't include PCL injury, which snapped MCL grade three, which took six to nine months to recover with no operations. You know, so as I said earlier, I can hang my hat very comfortably, saying I'm proud of myself that I've overcome these things and still managed to get contract offers from top clubs and still be able to play. I'm at peace with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, it's 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 good to hear because you know, I've spoken to different people and there's there's some people who I suppose they leave the, the game and there's bitterness there. Do you know there's like a frustration that or I didn't fulfill potential or something there's, or that, that they've got injuries and, and maybe feel the game owes them something, but your perspective is great that you you had a great career, you played for 14 years, you did what you loved and um and finish finish strong do you know with, with uh, it's still able to do everything you want to do with young kids so you can lift yeah. them up and play with them and stuff like that which at the end of the day like yeah that's the most important thing things will happen in life you know work yeah. work related and, and life related that you're not in control of and it's going to affect your future but it's, it's it shouldn't be looked back on going you know i, I damn this happened because it could have been something else, man. Life happens. Like yeah. I could, I should have lost my wife and my baby. I didn't. Yeah. Why did Nevin and his brother and his dad die? Who knows? But things that can't be answered can't affect your life and can't affect your mental health. And it's got, it's taken a long time for me to get there, but it's definitely, it's certainly not controlling me. And it's certainly not me waking up going, man, what if I didn't have those injuries or if that guy, that coach didn't select me that game or what, you know, I could have had this and had that or someone in my position in another club, how is he getting 50 caps for Ireland? You know, that sort of thing. Like, there's more important stuff in life. Uh, that's what I truly believe. And the most important thing in my life is I've got three beautiful kids, a wife and a baby on the way. Yeah. If they're happy and they're smiling and I'm playing with them, I'm doing something right. Yeah, absolutely. And what a way to, to end. I think there's there's only one sort of thing I want to ask you, and it, it's, it's supposed about next steps. And you're obviously enjoying, you seem to be really enjoying the role that you're in at the minute, and it sounds like a really good fit for you. I mean, in terms of going forward, like, is there anything that you really want to do? Like, what's the next bit inappropriate to ask you when you're in a job? What do you, is there, <laughs> do you want to do a different job? But is there anything, even within rugby or within that role, that you would like to do or another job that you you sort of um have an ambition towards um you know it's funny i had this conversation with my wife yet last night about you know we, we were trying to 
think of what's going to happen in five years time. And it's kind of like, well, what's happening right now is that I'm extremely blessed that people around me and people who've, whether heard of me, have given me opportunities in my work, who've supported me um, right now, currently when I've retired, that the life's good right now. Um, do I see myself in this job forever? Absolutely not. But I know I'm, whatever I'm doing at that current situation, I'm going to give it my best. I'm going to build my connections and my network. Um, and I'm going to enjoy life. And, you know, what have, whatever happens, I've, I've had things thrown at me already in the last four or five months. Um, but it has to be, you know, I'm not a single man where I can't just jump, jump at, at anything. It has to be a, an appropriate thing for my family. But currently right now, I've got a great guy who, who gave me this opportunity and Alan Hunter. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying it. And I'm learning a lot every day and I'm building connections. So whatever happens, happens. You never know. I might, might start a podcast. <laughs> no, I'm only joking. Don't need any competition. No, <laughs> no that's, it's such a pleasure speaking to you. And I think what you said is of huge value, particularly talking about uh, opening up and, and talking to people and having the uh, sort of vulnerability and courage to do that is inspiring. Uh, I really hope it op opens up other conversations for people maybe struggling with mental health uh, who've maybe been through hard times and to hear that uh, resilience and the, the ability to, to battle um, really difficult events um, and come out the other side stronger um, has been inspiring to listen to. So, Ali, thanks so much for your time and I'm sure people will love listening to that. Thanks, Peter. I appreciate it. And, um, mate, keep up all the good work with all these podcasts. I will do. You know, we love it, especially, especially conversations like that. Mm -hmm.